0: For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. You are the lifter of my head. Hi, and welcome to The Rock Podcast. It's hard to believe, but no sooner had Pastor Nehemiah left Jerusalem people's new resolve to live for the Lord dwindled. In a matter of a few years, moral and spiritual compromise began to creep back in, and soon Jerusalem was back doing the very things that had brought on the former tragedy. Nehemiah returns to find Israel backsliding and immediately takes action to bring restoration. Let's join Pastor Ross now with a message entitled, Getting Back on Track. Heavenly Father, now as we just wrap up this uh, study 13 chapters of Nehemiah and how you were working back in him and through him and through your people, Lord, with just marvelous truths for us to be encouraged by. And so we pray, Lord, as we conclude the book, that you would just seal this truth in our hearts and help us to put these truths into practice and be blessed and be a blessing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Most of you know that we spent uh, about four years uh, living in Kanazawa, Japan, uh, as missionaries there, when the kids were really uh, babies, really, and their first memories were there. In fact, PJ, our youngest, was born in Japan. And and so we saw a lot of the country uh, while we were there during those years. Uh, but we, we never made it to Nagasaki or Hiroshima. Uh, the infamous cities, of course, were the first and only uh, nuclear... Uh, Weapon was ever used in warfare in uh, history. Uh, Back in 1945, of course, the first it was Hiroshima, in the way the Japanese would say it, Uh, August 6th, and then uh, August 9th in Nagasaki, and uh, obliterated those cities. Uh, Six days later, Japan effectively. Really surrendered and effectively ended World War II, and thus many uh, historians say saved maybe triple the amount of lives that were lost uh, by ending World War II. Too in that way. Uh, One of the reasons we didn't bring the kids to uh, visit those two sites were obviously, (laughs) I I mean, uh, here, kids, you know, they're just little toddlers, and here's where, you know, a, a, a bomb was dropped, and, you know, so there was really no pull for us to go there. We were always with our kids. Um, and so we didn't go there. Here's a slide of how, uh, what happened as a result. And just, just devastated there. Uh, that's Nagasaki. And then uh, let me show you 70, what is it, 76 years later uh, now, what it looks like. Yeah, not bad resolve there. Uh, there's enough, I think there's one more picture, maybe not. It's not the only picture that I sent over there, but it it, it is a a, a beautiful uh, city, and it's been restored uh, quite nicely. Well, thank you for that slide. I was thinking about uh, the overarching theme of Nehemiah uh, as we conclude tonight with chapter thirteen. Uh, Jerusalem was obliterated by a world superpower, the Babylonians. Of course, you remember and recall that, and and Jerusalem, the capital city of the Promised Land, was obliterated. I think really much like uh, the picture that you just saw, just a small smoldering pile of rubble. Uh, it's even described that way, with no life. I mean, Babylon came in and leveled the place and took the people out and exported them to all parts of the Middle East, mostly. Uh, Iraq and Iran. And so what an amazing turnaround uh, for Jerusalem to rise up from the ashes. It took them about 150 years uh, with God's help without the aid of technology, 20th century technology or equipment, you you see. And so up from the ashes came the capital of the promised land, and they were up and running. And uh, just uh, even the enemies of the surrounding nations uh, had to acknowledge that it was indeed miraculous, and they acknowledged the hand of Yahweh in the restoration of that uh, great city. Of course, Ezra... Uh, Esther and Nehemiah uh, really chronicle the story of a city rising from the ashes with God's help and through God's people. And basically, Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther are the three uh, conduits that really uh, enabled God to pull the people of uh, God together and see uh, them do amazing things. And so, uh, In all of that, God's heart has been revealed through this book and through Ezra and uh, Esther. uh, Bombs go off and we are the building of God. We're called that in the New Testament. And our lives unravel, and sometimes there's a smoldering pile of rubble where we used to have a life or had hopes and dreams. And uh, and we talked about this last week. I mean, who hasn't experienced the bomb going off or a phone call or an email or a relationship or a death or a disease or a diagnosis? Uh, My word, we're either victimized or we're victimized by our own folly and foolishness. But God stands ready. And what you get out of this book is, is that even when it's your own folly and missteps, that God, the great I am, stands ready to restore, to rebuild, to pick you up out of the smoldering ash pile and heap and fill you again with hope and his goodness and confidence and, 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 and renew uh, his love uh, for you. And just a beautiful thing. And all he asked for to do this that we've been seeing is a pinch of faith. What did Jesus say? If you had a, just the size of a mustard seed, you know, a mustard seed can go under your thumbnail. You know, he said, if you had that much, you could just move kingdoms. So apparently... Uh, We don't have a lot. (laughs) Uh, And so, uh, yeah, we think we do. But, I I mean, he's saying you just need a little. And and not only a a little bit of faith, but a heart that wants to obey and a willing spirit. You know, those are the ingredients for God to be able to rebuild and to restore what, you know, the enemy has uh, plundered. And so, well, tonight. Now we're going to take a look. Uh, Israel has had those three ingredients. Well, they had them temporarily. For 12 years, Nehemiah was there, and they had a little bit of faith, and they had a heart that obeyed, and they renewed their vows, and they had a willing spirit. But guess what? We're gonna find out tonight that Nehemiah's job was done and he wanted to go back after 12 years of doing this project, he wanted to go back to Persia, back to his, where he's from, his home. I mean, and to his job where he served the king of Persia who was really occupying even Israel and the then known world, right? But what happened while Nehemiah was gone? Out of sight, out of mind, and with Nehemiah, who was sort of the the head pastor over the reforms, uh, as soon as he was gone, things began to deteriorate. And chapter 13 is the, the story of him coming back now and finding it back to spiritual backsliding, the very thing that caused the chastisement and the, the bringing of God's enemies into Jerusalem to obliterate the place. They're already, they've been restored, and, and, and they're already acting in ways that brought the disaster on them in the first place. Some people uh, are slow learners. And tonight, uh, we're going to see now what Nehemiah comes and how he's gonna restore them yet again, one more time, back to the straight and narrow path. Let's start out with the first three verses on that day. The book of Moses, that would be Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 23, was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there it was found written in chapter 23. So the book of Moses basically is Deuteronomy, plus the, some other of the opening uh, books in the Bible, but book of Moses, Deuteronomy, and in chapter 23, they found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God, which is not a denomination uh, back in the day, (laughs) but it is where the assemblies of God got their title from, because that also means church. It's the Hebrew word for church. Where the Greek word ecclesia called out once, it's the same understanding. So uh, no, no Ammonite, no Moabite, the, former, the, the, the current enemies of Israel, was allowed in the congregation. I'll explain what that means. Because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam, a sorcerer, <laughs> to call a curse down on them. And by the way, our God, however, turned that curse into a blessing. I love that little, by the way, that didn't go very well for Balaam. Uh, Verse three, when the people heard this uh, law or the scripture, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. So that needs a little bit of explanation or you're going to get the wrong idea, but we have talked a little bit about this. Note takers, number one, restoring the unity of the faith, the unity of the congregation. Now, uh, everything that you read in chapter 13 is going to be restoring the, and then fill in the blank, because that's what it is. He takes several issues of backsliding, and he's going to identify the problem and then make uh, reforms, all right? And so in this case, there was a very serious problem, and uh, it, he says, on that day, so we're going to find out Nehemiah is already back, and on that day means... Uh, on the day when Nehemiah is back and he's seen all of the backsliding and now they've called an assembly and they started reading the Bible. And reform number one is going to be what is going on with the enemies serving side by side in the congregation accepted as fellow believers? And, and so th- this was already in the Bible as a no-no. And, and so wh- what exactly are we talking about here? Well, Uh, he's talking about the redefinition of what it means to be a believing member. Israel's called uh, the Lord's congregation. So what does it mean to be a member of the Lord's congregation, Uh, right? So this is what we're going to hear about tonight. Uh, What is the church? What is the assembly of God? Well, let me answer that. It's believers, It's those who surrendered their life in the Old Testament to Yahweh, the great I am, right? Uh, Lovers of God, lovers of his word, people who surrendered their lives, left, listen, left their old lives for a new life with God, right? So that was what would be required of a foreigner. They could come into Israel to have fellowship with God, and be part of the congregation. Foreigners were welcome. Foreigners are all over the place. In in uh, Joshua chapter 8 and 35. 2 Chronicles 30 and verse 25. Uh, foreigners were uh, warmly received. The word of God uh, had laws protecting foreigners. In the congregation. So whatever this means. It doesn't mean to exclude by their DNA or their racial makeup from the congregation of the Lord, it is to exclude as official members those who are not born again, those who have no faith, those who still are Ammonites in their hearts. Now, it's one thing if Ruth the Moabitess, it says, exclude Moabites. Well, Ruth becomes a hero because she leaves Moab and her gods, and the Moabite godless traditions for faith in Yahweh—that's fine. But you had to—you had to leave Moab and and sever ties with a nation that was at odds with God, hostile to God and the things of God, and hostile to His people. And so he says he just wants to point out here. He says, um, uh, he, first of all, he lists the the law there. You know, they, they would have had to been baptized and other rites to become Israelites, and that would have been cool. So he says, let me explain and give you a reminder why the law of God was instituted in De- Deuteronomy 23 that said that they couldn't be part of the congregation, and let me tell you why. And so that incident that is quoted there is from Numbers 22 uh, through 24. So his point is really, really clear. He's saying the transplants who just come from the Middle East from territories that were terrorizing Israel. Still hanging on that cold. Uh, These nations that were supporting terrorism we're sending people, and they live in Jerusalem. And the Jews were saying, "Okay, you live in Jerusalem; you can be part of the congregation." And they held official uh, places, and, and they were sat on boards, and they were on platforms, and they were making influential decisions, and they were treated like you, uh, like uh, bona fide believers in the Lord. And he said, "That's not going to happen." So he points out that these have been long-standing enemies for what—a thousand years. This incident that is recalled here is a thousand years old. And for a thousand years, the Moabites and the Ammonites had been dogging Israel, trying to wipe them off the face of the planet. And nothing much has changed because these are the same people groups today who haven't changed their mind. So they cannot just come into Israel and say, hey, we want to be Jews, too. We want to sit on the platform. We want the pulpit, too. And they were getting it, as you're going to see. And, and, and Nehemiah comes in and goes, are you guys crazy? Uh, are you guys crazy? If they want to come into the congregation, let them repent. Let them change. Let them evidence that they have faith in Yahweh. Let them be baptized Then other uh, uh, rites. And then they bring them in and they're, they're, they're able to come in like Ruth and others in, the, in Rahab. Rahab was a Canaanite, but she left her Canaanite gods and ways and customs. She became one of us, a believer in God and and a welcome member of the congregation. All this is saying is, you guys, come on, discern, discern. You cannot, that would be like hiring non-Christians just because they're good at singing and playing the guitar to lead God's people into God's presence to have a non-Christian, unbelieving guy who, who's living with his girlfriend and smoking pot and, and doing these things and saying, I'm not even sure there is a God. But you hire him in as a member of the congregation and let him lead and, and kind of exhort from the platform. That's what we're talking about. That would be crazy. Oh, Oh, but we're doing that. And that happens in this county. And it happens in this state, right? And and why? Who's behind this? Uh, The devil wants to obliterate the faith and the unity of what the people of God are. And so he's going to say, well, slip in some terrorists. Slip in some unbelievers. Slip in some pot smokers. Uh, You know, so what? He's living with his girlfriend and he doesn't believe in God. Put a guitar in his hand. Have you heard him play? Oh, he's awesome, you know? My word, people. That's what Nehemiah is going to blow a few head gaskets in the chapter, and I'm feeling it right now. (laughs) All right, do you understand what's going on here? Let's continue on then. Four through seven. Before this, Eliashib, the priest, had been put in charge He's a high priest, by the way, put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah. Tobiah is like the devil in Nehemiah. He's he's a terrorist and he's a bad guy. He's a villain. But apparently there's a tight relationship with the high priest who's now in charge. Uh, uh, Well, who's been provided with a large room, formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles, and also the tithes, the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests, verse 6. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king, to my job. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem, which is now. Here I learned about the evil thing Sheep had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. Now let's talk about that. So first he had to clean up what it meant to belong to God's people the congregation. And the next now, he's got to restore the integrity of the ministry. Well, one led to the other, didn't it? And so we're going to see what happens when you ignore the first law, which was to make sure that believers were officially leading and serving in the house of God. So here we are restoring the ministry's integrity. Uh, So what's going on here? So there's an unholy alliance between um, a high priest and a bad guy, and it involves finances of the church. And so really what you have here is an ancient uh, scandal, uh, a church scandal that involves finances. And so uh, two guys who are out of place and doing a lot of damage uh, when it comes. So how did this monkey business start? Well, it begins with the wrong person in the wrong position. And that should have been everybody's first red flag. Now, Eliashib, now, he's identified earlier in the book as a high priest. High priests have nothing to do with the tithes or the storerooms to the tithes or the money boxes. Their job was to minister in the holy place and and these kinds of things, offering sacrifices. So right away, you know, wait a second. We maybe have the right qualified guy to be a high priest, but he's doing the wrong thing. God did not call him to do that. What is he doing with the tithe storehouse? What's up with that? And so you've got a problem with that. The Lord has callings and giftings and functions and positions for everybody in the church. He puts pastors where he wants pastors. He puts deacons where he wants deacons. And the deacon better not be a pastor, and a pastor shouldn't be a deacon. And I mean, it's kind of like a body. The eye is an eye. The eye can't be an ear. If the eye tries to be an ear, you're going to be messed up. I promise you that. You, You see? And so this is what happens. So the first red flag is the eye wants to be an ear, or what's the eye doing over where the ear is? So they should have figured that out. And so... He had spiritual duties. Not he had was not not to be involved with the fiscal affairs of the ministry. Uh, the other thing is uh, enter the unbelieving foreigner, who's making sh- taking um, he he's using his authority to manipulate things. Tobiah, what is he an Ammonite? Hello, let not the Ammonite be an official member unless he becomes a. a Christian, in, the, in our thinking, unless he becomes a Jew who believes in Yahweh, sure, come on in. But if he's an unrepentant terrorist, I don't think you should be letting him appoint a high priest uh, to move into the temple and take charge of the fiscal uh, situations there. Something is, uh, uh, is not going uh, to be good when you have that combination. So Tobiah, we already knew, he was devilish, uh, devious, vicious opponent of the wall. So now Nehemiah has gone. He was Nehemiah's rival. He wanted Nehemiah's job and he did everything for chapters and chapters and chapters to intimidate, to murder. He wanted to murder Nehemiah. And now he's got Nehemiah's job because Nehemiah left and everybody just kind of wilted over and let this dude come in and boss everybody around. Probably has money and influence and so he came in. And what does he do? He appoints, it says that there's a close association in the book of Ruth, the Hebrew there, uh, that says we're closely associated. In Ruth, that means related. So they're either related or there's a close tie. We don't really know for sure. Right, so, so what happened there? So Tobiah and the high priest are in cahoots and money's involved. Okay, so now we see what's going on. Uh, and we say, aha, I'm kind of getting it. There's some kind of alliance and there's some, some kind of money involved. So what do you have here? You have an unqualified leader, Tobiah, exerting influence over a qualified leader who's morally compromised to take a position that's not his to hold. And those kind of shenanigans, ministerial shenanigans, go on every week in the good old U.S. of A in the uh, 21st century, unfortunately. To have a good ministry that's healthy, it's not rocket science. I, I'm, it's qualified biblical leaders, uncompromised integrity, and serving in the capacity God has intended which is made known in the Bible. So what do you got here? You got the fox guarding the hen house. Uh, so we got Dumb and Dumber. They have, they have control over the ministry's finances, okay? And what's happening here is, is, is that, oh, and by the way, uh, Dumber <laughs> moves in to the storeroom I mean, can you get any closer to the cash than moving into the, to the vault? That's what he does. He, he empties out the vault and everything that's coming to the vault is going to be his because it's coming to his house now. And he got in there, how? Because he put the high priest in charge. And his high, the high priest is a morally compromised cousin of Tobias. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And it happens all the time. What are they doing? They're patting their pockets. They're lining the pantries. In come the grain for the festival offerings and the communal meals, and it's going straight to Tobiah and his rotten, morally rotten cousin there, or whatever. They're close, or they're being paid off, whatever. So it's a, it's they're they're profiting at the expense of the ministry of God. So, but wait, there's more, <laughs> you know. Unbelievably so, and I've already kind of told you this. He, he's, he's actually in the temple. Rent, he's not renting. He has the apartment, and it's the vault where the cash crops were kept. That's unbelievable to me. Where's the outrage? Where's the high priest that's supposed to be guarding the people of God? But he's in it because he's getting paid off on the side, and where are the other priests? There's not one person... In the congregation says, excuse me, I think that's not right that we empty out the vault and let Tobiah, that terrorist, live in there. I just think there's something wrong with that. Not a word. Not a word. They They just get to do what they want and God's people are just afraid it's not my place to say. And who am I to judge? a quote from a commentator about this passage, when weak-willed people who know better sit idly by and watch as evil does its destructive work, but it's in their power to speak up or expose or work to rectify a bad situation, they are complicit in the deed and share part of the responsibility for any harm caused. Confidentiality ends where the work of God or the people of God are put in a vulnerable situation. You have no confidentiality cause to anybody if you know something's going on that's going to cause or wreak havoc in somebody's life. Oh, but they told you, you know, oh, you found out. Please, please promise me you won't say anything. That prom- Even if you promised. That promise means nothing if somebody's in harm's way. And if the work of God is in harm's way, well, then you better speak up and do something uh, so that uh, you're not held liable as well. And so Nehemiah uh, sheds light on all of this. And uh, we're informed now in verses 6 through 7 that he had taken some time away. He went back to Susa called Shush in um, Persian, it's uh, southwest Iran, and he went back home and he's come back now and the saga continues eight through 14. So we've got two things going here. Eight through 14, please. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobias household goods out of the room. (laughs) I like this guy. I gave orders to purify the rooms, (laughs) and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them. Oh, surprise. I wonder where they were going. Uh, And that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. You've got to make a living somehow. Verse 11, so I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their post. Verse 12, all Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine. Tithes means 10%. It was kind of the law of the the land. Support the ministry with a tenth of what God gives you. Grain, new wine, and oil into the storerooms. I put shalom. Shelemiah, Shelon, Sh yeah, him, the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms and made Hanan, son of Zachar, the son of Mataniah, their assistant because these men were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their brothers. Remember me for this, oh my Lord, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. All right, 8 through 14. Let's take a look at this. The saga continues. Uh, still restoring the integrity of the ministry. Now it's time to act, and uh, Nehemiah is a man uh, of courage, and he's not just a man of words. He he puts uh, his uh, life into action. So a real leader, they know the word of God. They have a heart for the Lord and a love for his work and, and encouraged to do the work of leading. Uh, the New Testament exhortation for leaders is fight the good fight. It, you just take a look at what this guy has to do as a pastor of the congregation of the people of God. And so it's a fight indeed. So he finds out to buy his living in the temple and that the Levites and the staff of the church or the ministry in our mind are not being paid. So they had to go back to their jobs to support themselves. They're not supposed to work. The Levites were not supposed to work, commanded by God uh, that his people would support them with a 10th of all of their um, incomes as it were. And so that wasn't happening because it was going to Tobiah and his high priestly uh, cousin and probably a few others. Uh, So it says that Nehemiah found this out and he was greatly displeased. Well, yeah, he was greatly displeased. Nehemiah's kind of got a volcanic kind of temperament and uh, we've seen this through the chapters. you know, someone who has a, a, a relationship with God really cares deeply, and, and, and he has moral fortitude, and this is this guy. Uh, here's a nice quote about this passage. Apathy for the condition of the work of God is a sign of a heart that's grown cold toward God, who is the Lord of that work. And so we see a guy who's always kind of upset when he's looking around at the congregation going, oh, are you kidding me? and he gets upset, and, he's, and, and you see a passion, you know, and if you don't have a passion, you just sit there like, who cares, whatever, I'm just here to get a little encouragement and get back to my life, you know. What does that say about where your heart's at? So Nehemiah's displeasure in the Hebrew there that you're staring at there, it says bitterly grieved. And, you know, it wasn't just like, you know, in all words, pious words, you know, oh dear, what is the church becoming? And all of this verbiage and no action. There was a lot of action, so it was time for action. He he throws the bum out. He goes up there and he says, what? You're living? The terrorist, the faithless terrorist, his former enemy, unrepented. He's living in the temple, in the vault controlling the ties and, and the Levites and priests and church staff can't do their job, so they're gone. They're back to their fields, because this guy's on his on his little lounge bed in there, you know, counting out the shekels. So he goes in there, and he grabs him by the scruff of the neck, probably, and hauls him out. And then they throw all his stuff out into the street, you know? I don't know that they boxed it up or anything. <laughs> But it, I don't know. Knowing Nehemiah, I think he just started throwing things out the window, you know? And, and so he does that. Bye-bye. See you later. And, and then it, he purifies or cleanses the temple. Hmm. The same temple that the Lord Jesus Christ, and now he's a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to go in. All four Gospels record uh, the, the latter Nehemiah, Jesus our lord who goes in to the bottom level right below probably that room there it's in a restored temple of course but uh uh, jesus goes in there what was happening passover and and the the high priests and the priests were all corrupt and they set up their tables and people would come in and they wanted to buy something or use money and so they said well you can't use that gentile money you're way out in the boonies using that kind of money. You've got to use the sanctuary-approved shekel. So you've got to trade in your money for the Jerusalem-blessed money, right? And, and we're just going to charge you a mere 45% or whatever it's going to be, right? And so Jesus walks in on this where uh, somebody would come from the countryside for Passover. They bring their lamb. And the corrupt Tobiah priests kind of guys are in there saying, oh, I'm so sorry to have to tell you this, that we found a blemish on your lamb. And you know it says in the law of Moses, don't offer the Lord any blemished animals because, you know, we see the stance, see the hips, the hips aren't quite right, and you just, it's not going to work. And so, by coincidence, I'm happy for you, we just happened to have some good lambs right over here, and they only cost $400 each. And so, that kind of thing was going on. Jesus went in there, and he turned, flipped over all their tables. He made a cord, out of cords, he makes a whip, and he drives the animals and those acting like animals out. So, you know, you just see him throwing the tabia out the door and cleansing the temple. And so you just have a beautiful picture. I don't know if you caught that or not. Decisive action was taken and here are the steps. Number one, you know, evict the bad guy, get him out of that position. And, and he did, quite physically, you know, boxed up his stuff, he's gone. Right. Step two is deal with all the responsible people. So here come the questions and the really the disciplining of the so called congregation and the leaders. Uh, verse 11 How'd you let this happen? How did you let this happen? what have you guys done here? Where were you? How could you neglect God's work? So, you know, the people who kind of allowed it to happen had to to be dealt with. They had to be kind of censored in a way or disciplined. Uh, Number three, call to action. He fires Tobiah's high priest cousin, Eliashib, right? He fires that dude. Uh, First of all, he didn't belong in the position. He never did, right? He's unqualified, and he evidenced that by his behavior, and so he fired him. He, he, he got him out of there. What does he do fourth? He fires the bad guy, and he hires five guys to replace them, five guys who are considered trustworthy. And so when you're dealing with money, you have multiple hands on that money. So there are three trustworthy guys who are going to steward the resources and According to your text, make sure the Levites and the singers and the staff of the church assembly, right, uh, get paid. And so that they come come back now, do the work, build up the people, but guard with integrity and good stewardship, manage the affairs of the church. And so uh, verse 13, just make sure that everybody is going to be taken care of and um and then he adds a quick, curious little uh, thing. Remember me, for, uh, oh, oh, oh my God, and do not blot out what I've done so faithfully here. What does he mean by that? He means I worked 12 years, then I went away, and I all got wiped out. So he's saying, let not my work before you, God, be just like that, wiped out don't want to see all my efforts uh, just disappear and be blotted out. Sort of what happened here. Uh, Don't let that happen to me uh, at all in your sight. And so we move on here. 15 through 18, continuing on. In those days, I saw men in Judah treading wine presses. So now we're on to another backslidden Uh, thing. They're working, the, the wine presses, on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine and grapes and figs and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. Men of Tyre, Lebanon, Lebanon. Who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them. What is this wicked thing that you're doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your forefathers do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity upon us and upon this city? You're doing the same thing again, and you're going to cause the same kind of uh, tragedy. Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. And so... We've restored the unity of the faith of the congregation. We've restored the integrity of the ministry by uh, removing the bad eggs and hiring some uh, trustworthy men. And now he's going to restore a proper holy work ethic of God's people. In other words, um, priorities. It's not going to be about believers. It's not all about personal gain or Your careers or how you're going to get by or material Um, needs—it's very important to God that we trust Him and not uh, have money as our uh, our career as our master, but Him. So, one of the Ten Commandments, just a quick overview, uh, is that we should that Israel needed to keep uh, the Sabbath day holy. Now, for us, that's fulfilled in Christ, and the New Testament tells us so. Don't let anybody give you a hard time about a Sabbath day because uh, in Christ, we have that Sabbath rest. Uh, There are some principles that carry over, I believe, and we've talked about that before. Uh, But originally, he's saying, show yourself different than everybody else on the face of the earth, that you have a God in heaven who, who takes care of you and provides for you. You're not supposed to be just about the rat race, all right? So I want you to take a day Okay, the seventh day. And, and Sabbath means to cease. I, and I want you to take the day off and worship and reflect and share my love and enjoy one another and that kind of thing because that's what life is about. It's not about running out and trying to uh, make money, make money, make money. It's about uh, living in relationship with God. And so uh, they were forbidden to work, but it wasn't just a negative uh, thing. It was to a positive, joyous kind of uh, celebration of that day. Uh, just saying, money's not your God, and that God will provide for us. So sure enough, Nehemiah returns, but they had vowed, they had already vowed. We're not going to ever work on the Sabbath. and We're going to shut the gates. Nobody's going to come in and and sell us anything. We promise. And they all signed. Remember, they all signed that thing. And and, and Nehemiah comes back, and they're up to their uh, old tricks again. So sure enough, somebody's treading. Uh, That's the way they did it, with their bare feet. And he's looking around, and he sees people walking in circles in their big wine vats. And they're crushing the wine, working on the Sabbath, and just, you know what, we need to get ahead, we need to get ahead, and who cares what God says, you know, I need money, you know, and so uh, he tells them, hey, knock it off, you know, and then they open up the gates, and here's the way they want to sin pretty, meaning they want to sin technically without sinning, right, so here's what they're going to do, they open up the gates, and we talked about this last time, they let... The foreigners, the Gentiles, come in with all their fresh fish. And by the way, the, the fish are sardines there. And you, they're hard to come by. They pack them in salt by the sea from Lebanon. And they bring them in there. And the Jews just love them. And so the fresh fish came in and building materials and, and all kinds of goods, as you see in your text. And here's how they justify breaking the Sabbath. Uh, we're not working. They're working. We're just buying what we need. You got a problem with that? Yeah, he had a problem with that because there's always a way for the flesh to find out how to do the thing that God has forbidden you to do without really looking like you're doing anything wrong. And there's so many ways to do that. It's just terrible, you know? Letting selfish ambition and business goals replace your life with God. And all people are going to say is, "Wow, what a hard worker!" And you're going to look industrious. Oh, wow, look at you! People are going to applaud you, and you're sinning because you threw God under the bus, all kinds of forms of ministry under the bus, supporting God's word uh, work. All you do is care about you, 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 and getting ahead, ahead, ahead. But you look pretty good on the outside, and this is what they're doing. Look, we're not working. We're not working technically. Falling in love with a nice, responsible, attractive unbeliever. Who is going to have a problem with that in the world? You're going to just look like, oh, look at that. Especially if the person is beautiful and has a little bit of money and is a nice person. Who cares that they are not technically a believer? So you, you are sinning, but, oh, in a pretty way. In a way that the world just says, hey, two thumbs up. You know, the guy who's more forgiving than Jesus and smarter than the apostle Paul. You look so good, but you've, you know, brought in the gospel to the cheers and the applause of people in the world. But you're sitting, right? But not technically, right? Because everybody's just saying, hey, look at how kind and nice and tolerant uh, you have become. And so watch that. I just noticed that he calls it a wicked thing. But would anybody in the world say, you know, he's buying a can of sardines. You're going to call that a wicked thing. How could you do a wicked thing? I'm buying sardines. My kids love to chew on the sardines. Watch yourselves. Because there's a lot of those kinds of things where you could so easily just say, what? What? Where does it say in the Bible that I can't have beer? Well, it doesn't, and you might be able to have beer. But you know, if you're one of the ones that God said, you know, for you, no beer. (laughs) And you know what? You know who the only one who knows that is? Well, there are two. Oh, actually, there are three. The Lord, you, and the devil. (laughs) Right? Some people can. Some people can have a beer. Some people can have a glass of wine. Some people absolutely, 100%, it is a sin every single time, and you know it. But is uh, you're going to take a sip, and you're on your veranda, and you take a sip, a- a- and you feel, oh, I've sinned again. And then you could just say, what, what? Just a glass of wine with my spaghetti, you know? It might be just a glass of wine with your spaghetti if you were somebody else. But you happen to be you. (laughs) With an alcoholic mommy and an alcoholic daddy and an alcoholic predisposition that doesn't sit right with you. So God said, you know what? For you, that's a no-no. Don't do that. I'm just saying. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on. All right. Did we do 19? Let's move on. When evening shadows fell, so now it's time to, you know, not just complain about it. Hey, you guys, you know, now he's gonna say, let me help you. When the evening comes, you know, uh, the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was open. That's one way to cure a problem, right? I really like Nehemiah. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside <laughs> Jerusalem, but I warned them and it said, Why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I'll lay hands on you. (laughs) And it's not to pray. (laughs) From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Oh, he's my favorite. Verse 22, then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, O my Lord, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Let's talk about that. Um, So now if you're going to lead, you're going to need courage, and you've got to just do more than talk. You know, husbands, fathers, if you see there's a problem in your family, you know, just don't just talk about it. You're going to have to take some action and close some gates and set some guards and, and, and do the work. And if it doesn't stop, you're going to have to go out there and say, hey, what are you still doing here? You didn't even mean to come out and mess with you? Because I will. You don't want some of this. You know, that's what Nehemiah is saying. <laughs> You don't want to mess around with this. So he takes decisive action, and Volcano Man gets busy. Now, oh, there's one more paragraph we look at before we end, and and that is, (laughs) he goes crazy, (laughs) and uh, that'll be fun to talk about. So uh, people were rebuked and reminded of God's word, first of all, and now their hearts were challenged, and Nehemiah gets to work with some practical reforms to have it in place. And so he locks the gates on Friday night, <laughs> shut the gates. So tomorrow, when the, the sardine vendors come, you know, the gates are all shut and locked. And so for two weeks, they just thought, we'll outlast him, because you know the Jews... They make promises, they cry, you know, they renew their vows. And then a few weeks later, it's all good again. They're buying sardines, you know, but Nehemiah's back. So they tried hanging out, but that wasn't going to work. Oh, snap, and a half, because he comes out there and he tells them, "Uh, I just threw in the half, you know. He comes out there, do it again, spend the night, and it's not going to be pretty. I really like that. Verse 22 uh, closes out, and he says... uh, Let the work for you express my love for you, Lord, and may it be received as such. And that's just a beautiful prayer. So uh, the point there is don't just talk about your problem and your need to get things right. Put things into place where that behavior cannot happen again. It can't happen if the gates are locked. That's smart. Okay, let's start to, let's finish up here. I believe we're going to finish up the book here from 23 on. Moreover, in those days I saw men, so yet another area of going back on their vows. I saw men of Judah who had married women of Ashdod Philistines, Ammonites, and Moabites, the three enemies of God and the Bible and everything holy. (laughs) Uh, They got married to them. You know, they're cute and have money. 24. Half of their children spoke the language of the Philistines or the language of one of the other peoples and didn't know how to speak Hebrew. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. (laughs) We'll talk about it, all right? I made them take an oath in God's name and said, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Joiada, son of the high priest, remember, Tobiah's cousin, whatever. The high priest was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite. Sanballat was uh, co-workers with Tobiah and just as evil. So the high priest, the Jewish high priest, married his daughter. And I drove him away from me. Like, I want nothing to do with you, dude. Remember them. Oh, my God. Because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at the designed times and for the first fruits. Now, with that, I believe that we have finished the book of Nehemiah. Now, some uh, concluding remarks about this passage. The area now is to restore holiness to the uh, area of the romantic personal lives and marriages of the believers. So this, too, was a stated vow in chapter 10 with their, all of their crying and renewing of their vows two cha- three chapters ago, uh, they said, oh, we'll never do that anymore. Now, marriage really within the faith is more important than anybody really realizes. A, the destiny of Judaism was at stake. Uh, the line of the Messiah was at stake. And the survival of Israel uh, is on the line. Because marriage to like-minded, faith-filled people either perpetuated and continued the faith or it brought it to a stop by marrying outside. You marry inside the faith, your children, you pass the faith on to the next generation, and they do the same thing. If you don't have that and you have enough of it, You do not have anything to pass on because as you see in the text, the children aren't speaking Hebrew. They aren't learning Bible stories because the husband or the wife doesn't want them to go to that temple. They want them to worship Ashdod and the God of the Moabites. And so what happens? Judaism implodes. And if Judaism implodes, Christianity dies. Because Christianity is embryonic Judaism. So if the devil can get in and say, you know, isn't she beautiful? Doesn't he have a lot of money? So what? That they're outside the faith and they're unbelievers. You marry to say nothing of what happens to your own relationship with God. And then you produce children who don't carry on the faith because they're not raised that way. And so you could have had... A disaster with the and this is what Nehemiah senses. He senses what's on the line, and what's on the line is more than anybody in this room could even imagine. And and what would happen if if the line of Jesus Christ was compromised? We'd have no savior in the world. And why? Because somebody said, What are you gonna tell me who I should love and who should love me? The messianic line would come under threat by their marrying out and disseminating the faith in Judaism, just Israel sort of crumbling away. And and you can hear the people say, oh, you know, how dare you tell me who I can marry, who I can like, and who I can love? Well, God can tell us, don't partner with unbelief. What do you have in common with an unbeliever? What does light have in common with dark? And he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 what does Satan have in common with Jesus? That's pretty serious stuff, and yet we do it all the time. It's like whatever, God'll work it out, and we justify what we do. And then, we, then, then I'm praying, and you don't know things like this, but I'm sure maybe you know a couple people like this. I'm praying out in the lobby with a young lady. This is a while ago, and she's in tears. What's wrong? Pray. Pray, my parents warned me. My pa- I was raised in a Christian home. My parents told me not to, to date this guy. And I dated him and married him. I love him, but he doesn't know the Lord. Still, we have three little babies. He won't let me even take them to church. He doesn't mind if I leave. But he won't let me take my own kids. And, and she's crying and weeping right out there in this lobby and saying, my mom cried with me and said, you're going to have kids. And he's not, but he was open. He was open. She's crying, telling me the whole story. At the time I married him, he was open to this, and he visited this, and he read the book I gave him and all of that, but he changed his mind. And now I'm stuck here, and I'm blessed, and I will, Pastor Ross, pray for me and my children. Right there. It's just God just has a plan he doesn't just say things to just mess everybody up he's not just trying to get in and cause you some pain he's trying to save you some pain and that's exactly what uh, was her life story is exactly what was going on uh, there in Israel so he makes them take an oath you know and you know, they, I imagine that they have sort of a town hall meeting where they pull together Nehemiah's going to lay it out. And he says, listen, listen, Solomon, and this is a great point. He says, King Solomon, with all that wisdom, why is this guy in the world? But he had trouble applying the wisdom in his own life, which often happens. You you know, you've got cardiologists who smoke. You know, you have that. I've met them, right? Or or you've got, you know, you've got judges who know everything about the law who break the law. It's just really sometimes hard to implement what you know and you give out to others to make it a part of your own life. And he said Solomon was like that. Here's the point about Solomon. Don't forget this. Solomon sinned by marrying foreign wives who led and seduced his heart away from the Lord to their foreign gods. And he worshiped their gods because he was in love with those wives. Israel, for all intents and purposes, was destroyed by it. From Solomon, the Lord appears to Solomon and says, so this is the way you treat me? Well, I'm going to rip the kingdom away from you and give it to your uh, subordinate, uh, Jeroboam and the kingdom divides, and there's 200 years of civil war. There's no more Israel because of Solomon and the foreign wives and what happened from that. And so Israel's divided into Israel and Judah, and and for 200 years they're at each other's throat, killing each other, and then Babylon comes in and wipes them all out and takes them all away. Why? Trace it back to what? This is why Nehemiah pulls the guy's hair out of his head. This is what pushed him over. He's saying, you're doing the very thing that destroyed us the first time. And God just graciously built us all back up from the ruins and you're doing it again. So one of them made the mistake of saying, what well, are you gonna tell us that you, you know? And so Nehemiah just went, boop. And, uh, and Nehemiah jumped the table and, and beat that guy, right? And took him by the hair and drug him out. And he, well, whoops, got a little <laughs> clump of hair. You know what? I'm not here to defend uh, Nehemiah, all right? But I am going to say this. He had some passion. He cared about what was going on. And maybe you haven't been in some committee. You haven't been in a committee at a Christian high school, where there was a confrontation with the Christian high school Bible teacher who was teaching his Bible students in the class at a Christian school about transcendental meditation, about the the value of Buddhism and about how Uh, Jesus and uh, Muhammad are basically saying the same things. And so parents had to complain and a pastor had to go and confront and the pastor's confronting him while the staff of the Christian school and the principal's defending him. Now, maybe you missed that meeting. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe you don't understand, like, oh, well, the poor guy pulling hair out of it. What, oh, what's he so excited about? Maybe you weren't in the meeting with the pastor who said because some disgruntled employee in his church got let go for good reasons. He got embittered and started lying and slandering and split the church in half. Maybe you missed that meeting. Maybe you think maybe somebody's overreacting. You can't justify, we'll let God judge him, right? You can't justify acting out in violence or vengeance. But the guy had passion. The guy cared about it. And if you've never really felt your blood boil, just boil at somebody destroying the work of God with their lips and lies after lies, and two ladies taking apart a whole church because they don't get along and they're fighting and they're mad at the pastors or whatever it is. Or some dude coming in and, and wreaking havoc with the gals. If you've never felt like I'm I'm you know, I'm I'm not very tall and I'm not very strong, but I could do some damage. <laughs> I have felt that, and if you you need to feel a little bit of that, I'm not saying you know what I'm saying. In your anger, do not sin. But I'm just coming to the defense of this guy and saying, look at him. It, which is worse, having a handful of some guy's hair because he probably needed it. <laughs> Have, which is worse, to, to have that or to just be complicit and not care at all? Let the guy teach. He's opening their high, the high schooler's eyes. Okay, which is worse? I'd rather I'd rather be Nehemiah with the fistful of hair. All right, moving on. And yeah, didn't we do that? Yeah, we did that, right? Okay, and so the 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 whole thing comes down to uh, putting in uh, new resolve not to do those things. And he swears them under oath. And he gives them the lesson of King Solomon. And hopefully Israel, well, Israel, so we're done. We're all the way at the end of the Old Testament. The next voice you hear is John the Baptist. So chronologically speaking, you're at the all the way at the end. There's no more room to go anywhere uh, chronologically speaking and uh, so that's why I was thinking where do we go now? Well we could go to a couple books that we've uh still pending, uh, but that's why I want to go to Proverbs and uh, uh, go through some themes there. Proverbs is going to be fun, amen? And uh, we're going to see all the things that uh, could have helped these people avoid uh, getting into fights with Nehemiah, for one thing. Let me close with five statements of why Nehemiah is my personal hero, and he is Hebrew too. Uh, Number one, Nehemiah had a burden for God in God's work. Number two, he was a man of vision. He didn't just talk about stuff. He implemented action. Number three, Nehemiah was a man of prayer. Number four, uh, he was courageous. Nehemiah was just uh, willing to fight hard for God's interests and God's people. You know, he put himself um, at inconvenience. And uh, he served God at a considerable cost. And he was a man who triumphed over opposition, finally. I mean, nothing stopped that guy. Nothing. Every chapter, there was a challenge. From the Jews, from the non-Jews, from the enemies, from the devil. Nothing stopped the guy. Because one thing mattered to Nehemiah pleasing God, and helping God's work to flourish and thrive. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the closing chapter of Nehemiah. Uh, We've learned a lot, Lord. Seal the work and the truths that we've learned and help us to process, Lord, and uh, to put these truths into practice. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand for a closing song.